I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. History makers. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I'm your host Emma Race, and it gives me such pleasure to be back in the Stu Stu Studio with my football love and lady friends. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. The black sheep, Alicia. Sometimes Lucy Race. Ah, it's uh, Whispering Jack on the comeback <laughs> tour. Felicity Race here. Hello, Felicity Race. Hi. I found you all. I've been wandering <laughs> the halls for weeks going, where are you? Yeah, no, I mean, it looking. does. It looks the same on every floor here at the ABC. It's Have you just crazy. been down on level two looking for us for the last six months? Yeah, pretty much. I really love the um, Beyonce tribute mural you've installed in here. <laughs> yeah. Pretty nice. It's, it's our rider now. Okay, so a bit of backstory. Felicity Race left the podcast for green oh. and mucus coloured pastures. <laughs> It's important. It's important. important. That's right. But we got you back this week because there was a grass cutting emergency. Last week, Googling with Felicity unleashed the cylinder mower on the AFL and AFL M and AFLW loving public. And now all we can see is grass cutting. And then lo and behold, someone went rogue. Someone went rogue. What happened? It was amazing, wasn't it? I was looking at it at the time and I thought when I looked up the cylinder mower, I didn't realise it had a scrapbooking option for those, you know, fancy <laughs> scissors. But if you haven't, she is. Exactly. But if you haven't seen it, down in Tassie on the weekend, rather than the stripes in the grass being straight, there were these beautiful ribbon-shaped meandering patterns and a lot of people brought it to our attention. So what else could I do? I had to Google again. What I found out is this isn't the first time they've done that down at that oval. Yeah. In fact, back in 2014, they decided to mow the waves to represent the ocean and in the middle... They made a map of Tassie. <laughs> so it wasn't just someone listening to Kanye and just pulling out. No. And, and I like to think it's because they listened to the pod. Mm, I think they were listening sure. last week and thought, huh, we take your straight line cylinder mower and we give you pinking wow. shears. An Easter egg. It is such a thrill to have you back for any Googling emergencies, but also to actually have your voice on the pod this week. So welcome back. Oh, thank I'm you. So glad that you're here. It's been a huge week. There's been some ridiculously close games. I love it when games are really close and the people who don't get the four points, they go, it was an ugly game. It was an ugly game. <laughs> and you go, it was just a matter of points. Like if it had gone the other way, it was a brilliant game. <laughs> it was such a brilliant win, you know. The big story for me was Paul Groves leaving his post as the AFLW coach for the Western Bulldogs. Really interesting point made on Twitter by one of our followers that there's now two premiership coaches of the AFLW competition who are not working in the program. So what is going on? I find this a very intriguing and very interesting development. Do you guys feel the same way? I I think it's fascinating what's going on at the Bulldogs across the board. You know, if it's a club that's had so much success in AFLW, there's a lot of people who've walked away from there. Has he said where he's going? He got a full-time teaching position. Oh. And I think he loves teaching and I think there's probably not enough money maybe in the AFLW well, coaching. Well, I wouldn't say there's an awful lot of money in being a full-time teacher either. So, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Maybe it's a function of full-time versus part-time work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's always going to be the challenge with AFLW because it doesn't run for the whole season and a lot of these positions aren't full-time. That mm. That's going to ha- have an impact that we don't see in AFLM. Yeah, I think you need a very accommodating employer, mm-hmm. like the uh, the lady in Thailand who's employing the whole of the soccer <laughs> yeah. team. You know, genuinely, like if you need to have so much time off to train and, and that, you, you have to have an employer who's going to understand that. It's a question of nurturing too, isn't it? So if you've they've come up in the ranks, they're doing as well as they can, how do you, how do you keep these people? That's yeah. an important mm. thing. To retain that kind of 
experience and IP is amazing. One question that I had was, do you think Debbie Lee will put herself in the mix to potentially coach that team? Because you know she works there. She is an exceptional coach. I wonder whether she still has coaching aspirations and I wonder whether that's something that we haven't thought about because she has been heading up the footy ops there. So that would be an interesting development if we saw it. Um, I think the Bulldogs are really progressive. They have a lot of women on staff. They have the matriarch. Felicity's best friend, Sue Alberti, of course. (laughs) So I'm really hopeful that they will have the support structure to implement a female coach because there's some great ones out there, as Michelle Cowan reminded us a couple of weeks ago on the pod. So I really hope we see that. Meanwhile, talk about John Longmire getting a bucket full of money backed up to his house to potentially lure him away from Sydney and go to North. If you were a coach and you had a current contract and there was a job like that up for grabs and you were interested, how on earth do you answer those questions that the media ask you without giving away one way or the other? Like, what would you say if you, if it was you, Felicity, right? And you had a contract, but you were interested and you wanted to be in the mix and you're trying to tiptoe across the precipice? I am a terrible, terrible liar. So whatever, don't don't look at me like that. I actually am. Whatever I said, my face would give it away anyway. You know, you just have to do it on the phone because you're actually a really good liar on the phone. (laughs) Am I? Yeah. All right. What have you lied about? I'll ring you later. (laughs) (laughs) What do any of you know what you would say? You just think about pizza. And the reason why is uh, because you think about food or you start thinking about what you're going to do tonight, you can have a straight face. Because seriously, I don't know what you would do. It's so easy, like Felicity said, to portray yourself. But you can see the appeal of, you know, a club champion, coming home story, all of that sort of stuff. I think it's that's really romantic. But I also wonder if that's actually what yields the best results. That sometimes I think when clubs just are so internal looking and think, oh, we have to get someone who's got the spirit of our club. The Shinbona spirit. Which we've talked about earlier this year that, you know, maybe you don't see the other opportunities and the potential like someone like Chris Fagan, who, you know, is completely outside of, Mm. you know, what a lot of clubs were looking for. And you see what he's doing in Brisbane. He's doing so well. Yeah. And a little known coach called Alistair Clarkson, who also people were like, why would you pick this guy? All right. I think we do have to roll up our sleeves and get Malene because there's been so much chat. And a lot of people want to know what our take is on Hawthorne this week. Hawthorne as a topic could be a whole topic, but there's actually lots of parts to this story. So instead of talking about it through just a prism of Hawthorne, let's talk about some on-field behaviour. And then let's talk about what's happened in the stands as well and what's happening in the outer for the fans. So let's talk about pinchy Ben Stratton. He's been given two weeks. Um, He stomped on someone's hand as well. The pinching, I feel like if it wasn't for that photo, it could have gone unnoticed for, you know, longer. It's one of those things that I've seen Razor Ray come out and say he didn't give away any free kicks for it because it's really hard to see. It's really hard to pick it up. But, of course, a photo tells a thousand words. And is that how many it tells? How many does a picture tell? I think it depends how many pixels. Okay, yeah. So a thousand or more. It was hideous. It was awful. And I hated seeing it. Is anyone, does anyone disagree with how bad pinching is? It was a a terrible look and it took me back to the time when one of my children was a toddler and um, turned into a serial biter at childcare. I wished he'd been the recipient, not the instigator. And I have the same feeling. You know, it's that awful, when someone does something that's so unsociable, so so not necessary. You just go, oh, please don't let this be one of mine. And, you know, rightly he got rubbed out. The only thing I think could have been better is if the club had stood him down for a week before the, the sanction. Yeah. Um, you know, if they'd got on the front foot and said, you know what, regardless of what the tribunal says, we don't we don't think you should be playing next week um, for mm. doing that. You know, there are so many behaviours and so many actions that we see on field that are really terrible and have the potential to cause really serious injury. When you see something like this, it's not that it's going to potentially cause injury. It's that it's just such a bad look. It's You know that it's the sort of thing that will trickle down to junior sport. I guess it's just something that doesn't make you feel proud. Mm. Like you, you want to feel proud of your club and your jumper and your players and the people that you pay to go and see. And that just really left me with a really bad taste in my mouth. Titus O'Reilly summed it up. He said it was a masterclass in how to become hated by every football fan in just a few hours. And Mm. I I couldn't agree more that it's about the eyes that are watching and, you know, the behaviour that people will be following. And it's just 
for me about anger as well. Like that's how you how you treat yourself, how you treat other people is really important. And I, I don't know, has he got everything in check? I'm just asking. Mm. It's interesting because if you think about the motivation, if you're just consistently niggling and pinching someone, what you're actually trying to provoke yes, them into turning right. around and hitting you to get a free kick or get them mm. penalised, don't you? It's a wearing down. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, by, it's yes. annoyance by a thousand paper pinches. Yeah. And I think, pinches. you know, we have to acknowledge that that is part of the game, that you know, the yep. reason that you tag someone is to, I guess, to negate their impact on the game. But a lot of the time when you're tagging someone, you're actually really frustrating them. So tactically, you know, trying to sort of get under someone's skin is a legitimate part of sport. But when you see it cross over to something like pinching. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just... Yeah, it's made me reconsider. I just, as a joke, as a fan of the footy, shout out, tickle him, tickle him. I've just done it as a joke. And that's actually made me think, geez, that's, that's... come on, Alicia. <laughs> I mean, the world lost their collective minds over the pinching because, hmm. well, firstly, because it was a stupid thing to do. And also he's a captain. And I think the same thing happened to Chris Judd when he was the captain in Chicken Winged. And I don't think you, you can't hide when you're a captain. Hmm. You need to lead by example. And unfortunately, because Hawthorne aren't getting the wins while Ben Stratton being the captain, these things are going to stick around with him a bit more. So I think it was really disappointing. I was pleased to see the CEO come out and be really firm on it and really disappointed. We went to a Hawthorne function on Saturday night and there was a vibe in the room. I thought people were pretty pissed off. I thought people were pretty disappointed and and it wasn't until Hawthorne inducted someone into the Hall of Fame and there was a moment talking about kind of life and death issues and family that I thought that's when the kind of when the mood lifted a bit, Mm -hmm. you know, when we started to look bigger picture. But there was something interesting. On the West Coast Eagles posted this really weird thing. Andrew Gaff was going for a goal. One of those things where they make someone dizzy and then see if you can kick a goal, whatever. Mm. And Nathan Vardy is trying to put him off and yells out, Andrew Brayshaw, Andrew Brayshaw, as he's kicking for goal. And what's really strange is that the West Coast Eagles actually posted that Mm. video. And so that kind of level of like strange bloke behaviour. I just don't understand it. Yeah, shit stirring and not really reading the room. And I thought that was... I think it's a real issue for the club that they posted it. Isn't it? Because it undoes the strong statements in saying that we don't want to see this kind of behaviour. Yeah. You can't necessarily control what people are doing in their training, but when you choose to air it, you've made a real When you don't think there's an issue with that. So I wanted to come back to that point that you made, Lucy, about these things do trickle down to what we see in kids' sport. And what was just crazy in my brain this week is that pinching completely people hated it. And then you see the Sydney Stack Eddie Betts moment, which was stunning and beautiful. And you think about that trickling down to kids sport. I would love to see that. I would love to Mm. see children having mutual respect for each other when they see each other do something amazing on the field. And inherently, I think people do think that. And there is a wonder in this game. But of course, there were still knockers about it, which drove me crazy. But the reason why it keeps happening is Des Headland alluded illuminated in his article talking about this was that there's no Indigenous people in commentary boxes calling this moment. Yeah. So we miss the moment and we stuff it up once again and we don't get to celebrate it because we don't have diversity of voices in the commentary boxes talking about it. Lucy, you have the article there by Des Headland. I do. And I'd like to just read a little part of it where he says, when Stack and Betts embraced, it was a forging of an acknowledgement. What it said was, I see you, my brother. I appreciate your skill and your effort. For Noongas, we have a word for this. It's called Kia. Some white fellas think it means just hello, but it means so much more. It's why when Adam Goods did the war cry, so many people got the message all mixed up. What Goods was doing was challenging us to ask questions. What is he saying? But instead, many people said, how dare he? Similarly, the Betts stack embrace said so much more about us, First Nations people in Australia, but many felt it was a sign of weakness. It was not. It was a sign, a lesson that we as Australians need more of this type of acknowledgement and care. Absolutely. We're getting schooled. Mm. I'm so pleased to see that Des Headland has got this platform now and I think the Indigenous um, Past Players Alliance has given him kind of a platform and a voice to be able to... I think there's power in that group and numbers to say this is something we need to highlight and talk about. It's a great opportunity for more of these stories to come out. I wish that Des was in the commentary box. Just after the Adam Goods documentary, it's really interesting to see how the media failed in so many ways there and by making a bigger deal out of this and making it negative, again, 
they're the ones leading with the wrong story. It's not always the case, but this is what they're doing. Also reminded me when we had dinner with Josh Gibson that he said on when he was on Buddy, he would just talk to him about small things and go, oh, you know, look over there. And, and they, they were had small talk. And that's mm. how he sort of one-upped him was just by little gentle talks. <laughs> and I, I think that's great. Him. Yeah, just yeah. tried to distract him and it wasn't with cruelty. I think you're right that in the wake of the documentary about Adam Goods, I feel like that has coloured the AFL's kind of crackdown on what's happening in the outer and it's been discussed as being heavy-handed. You know, I sat back and I watched um, Footy Classified and 360 and listened to Sport Radio and, gee, I had a lot of a lot of people from a very narrow point of view who have probably only sat behind glass or played on the field talking about what the fan experience is like and how some people need to just suck it up and it's our right to yell and scream at the footy. And I thought, you know what, this is actually making me, I'm starting to go crazy now. I think my, my brain is starting to unravel. I'm like, I, I can't sit and listen to these people who've not been in the outer and had a genuine outer experience since they were maybe children telling me and telling the audience what it's like and what should and shouldn't happen. I was like, we need to be the leaders here. And I don't mean us in this room, but I don't need to look to the AFL for them to tell me what the right or wrong thing is for how people behave. And I certainly don't need to look at white male former players who've been sitting behind glass or being on the field getting paid big bucks for it to tell me how to think and feel about it either. There was an article from Campbell Brown saying, you know, I've never seen people in the crowd before with tape over their mouths. Well, I just felt like saying, well, you know what you also don't see at the footy? All the people who don't turn up anymore because they were told to go home and bake a f***ing cake or because they were sick of hearing derogatory slurs. And even if the language hasn't been foul, it can still be so intimidating. I did not see anyone really, apart from Nat Edwards talking about the female fan experience and and hers was that she felt that there was too many people patrolling. I wasn't there on the weekend, so that wasn't my experience. But this experience here tells me and all of our audience have relayed what it's been like for them to go to the footy. And we've got a body of um, knowledge and experience on it. And it really frustrated me not having diversity of voices talking about this audience thing. Alicia? Yeah, I just wanted to comment on footy classified hearing Chris Judd hit out at the AFL talking about snowflakes, saying that uh, people who are offended are snowflakes about the security issues. He said, we're searching for this utopian world where everyone claps politely. I don't see what people are so upset about. As long as it's not racial, religious or sexual orientation, I don't know why everyone's so concerned about hearing offensive comments. Get over it. You have the right not to be offended as well. Hutchison came in and sort of said everyone's level of offence is different and he really did give an a different point of view. Chris Judd said we have to yield to the snowflakes as if it's an, a massively negative thing. And I can't stand this term, snowflakes. <laughs> Hutchinson said people have spoken en masse that from time to time they feel uncomfortable. And he said the AFL has to decide which side they're going to listen to. Is it the people who are offended or the people who are not offended? Oh. And I just wanted to say on snowflakes for the science, Chris Judd, a snowflakes is a beautiful, unique thing. It, it is formed through temperature and humidity. I love that fact that they're just so beautiful, unique, strong, viable. And as the outer sanctum, I think we are a snowflake because the fact snow crystals always exhibit six-fold symmetry. They are always six-fold pronged and we are snowflakes. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Do you know where I think Chris Judd's got, he's got it wrong in, Has he? in just a few words. <laughs> he keeps talking about people being offended, offended, but it's not being offended, it's being intimidated. Yeah. Yes. And people do not have the right to be intimidated by other people. So if we're all paying the same money to go to the same sporting event, what gives one person the right mm-hmm. to intimidate via their language, their behaviour, their body language, everything? That is not a right. I'm not offended by people who are sitting behind you know, bombing and yeah, yeah that doesn't offend me but when it when it crosses over into intimidation when you turn around and say hey do you mind I've got five children here with me and they stare you down and tell you in why you shouldn't be in that space because we're at the footy and this is what we do and you are crossing over into intimidation yeah that is not a right. No. I wonder if what we're seeing here is an element of backlash from people who are feeling like they can't say what they really think about a whole lot of issues 
because it's no longer socially acceptable. And so in seeing security guards, you know, walking up and down or wearing vests saying behavioural modification specialist or whatever it was. <laughs> Behavioural awareness officer. <laughs> awareness, awareness, that word. Uh, I think that people are choosing to have a big yell at clouds and other things about it because they haven't been able to say what they really think about being told to rein in some of the other things that they've said. I heard a caller to Melbourne Radio this week who works at one of the stadiums and he called in to say that he has seen things change over the years and it's not necessarily that the behaviour is getting worse but that he's seeing that people have lost the art of being able to interact with each other without it going from zero to full aggression. I It made me think of a piece I'd heard on the Hilo which is a podcast I absolutely adore. It comes out of England and they had been talking about silent Uber and this new facility where you can select that you would like your Uber to be silent and people don't talk to you. And they were talking about the breaking down of conversation and opportunities for people to talk to each other. And you can pretty much, you could go your whole day and not speak to anyone anymore. You can order your food over the phone. You can buy your food in a grocery store without having to interact with anyone. What it makes me wonder is we lost the art of social interaction of how we negotiate the give and take, negotiating ways of sharing spaces together. Mm-hmm. I think that's perhaps something to consider. Do you think instead of those vests, they need to get the two-headed ones and put them on these people in those like <laughs> get-along shirts that you see? They like, need you to have, have to some stay. Mums. Yeah, you need yeah. to stay in that get-along shirt mm. until you get along. I tell you what's not helpful though. What's not helpful is Jeff Kennett mm-hmm. bringing race into this. I'm going to ask you something about this, M, because as number one ticket holder for Hawthorne, you do have a platform and I'd love to hear what you think about what Jeff said. Yeah, well, I always find it really confronting when Jeff says things that I don't agree with, but Jeff and I openly disagree on many things. And in fact, our first conversation was disagreeing a lot about something. I have to say that I respect that he can see past the things that we disagree on to still elevate my voice and our voices collectively within the Hawthorne Footy Club and and to understand that we have a voice that the footy club needs as well to make us ambassadors of the women's team and of the men's team. Um, he supports our difference of opinions and experiences and it would be absolutely no shock to him that we don't agree with him on the on the language that he used and on the sentiment that he put out there. I do completely disagree with that. I think what we've seen across the board is that potentially there was a, an influx of more security staff working and they perhaps didn't have a thorough job description or it wasn't managed well by, but I think that will change. I don't think we need to lose our collective minds about how many people there were. I wouldn't, don't think I would find that threatening to see more security people. <laughs> but when you see them... <laughs> Stepping in to see a tackle, um, <laughs> to see a hard hitting on the boundary down at Bell Reve Oval. Actually, did you, so you saw that footage mm. of a security guard who clearly didn't quite know. He was sort of overstepping. He was trying to break up a fight between players. <laughs> he was. <laughs> so if you didn't see it, we've got the the ABC's coverage of it. It was Corbin, Berkey and Al Nicholson who saw the whole thing with their own human eyes. It's Shaw and Zeeble in a tangle. Why is the security guard out there? What's the umpire to tell the security guard to get off. <laughs> this crowd control thing's gone too far. It's, it's gone going. way too far. Completely out of control. But now a fellow weekend. security guards come across and said, mate, you can't be doing that. I think Superior is having <laughs> a chat to junior security guard who's back sitting on his chair. and <laughs> He's telling Zeeble and Shaw to get up. Dear oh dear. What is going on? Yeah, what is going on? So that was the moment when a security guard tried to break up an on-field fight. The thing that I just want to finish on about Jeff Kennett from my perspective, you guys probably have a whole lot of things to say as well, is that what is unfortunate is that we have now a body of experiences where presidents have said things that are completely out of line with community standards. And while they might get a slap over the wrist, there's precedent to say that nothing else will happen. That's all there is. Oh, my my great fear is that in saying what he said, that Jeff Kennett has now enabled people to racially vilify security officers. That is really dangerous because it really reminds me of stoking the flames that I saw in the Adam Goods documentary. And I think it's going to take more than just a tweet apologising. 
I really do. I'm really quite upset about this. Um, it actually reminds me, Tess, our producer who's sitting behind me out there, I had heard you speaking on They Came to Play about the language that was used by um, Richard Goiter and also by Gillan McLaughlin in saying that in all of this fan behaviour discussion, what's important for the AFL is that they want women to feel comfortable coming to the football. And you said something that I found really pertinent. I'm wondering whether you could repeat it for our Outer Sanctum listeners. I speak so fast and off the cuff, I can't really remember. But what made me cross was, first of all, I said, now that there's 50% stakeholders that are women, and Gillen said, you know, we want people to be able to bring their wives and girlfriends to the football, I just got super mad at that. You walk up the stairs at the MCG, you look at photos from the 1800s, there's 50% women there too. There have always been 50% women. It is not women's fault that you can't intimidate people anymore, and it's not women's fault that the security guards aren't trained well enough. And the idea that I'm a wife or a girlfriend of someone who might want to go to the football, well, I'm sorry, but... I've always gone to the football by myself. So do many other women. So do women go with other women. We're not accessories at the football and we're not to be blamed for your behaviour. It made me fire up Tess. Yeah, well, it feels like it's put it in the public domain that it, that this whole crackdown on what people can and can't say will somehow mm-hmm. end up being the fault of new Australians who are yes. security guards, women who want to come to the football as wives and daughters, and Adam Goods. <laughs> like you know, oh. I can feel I could feel that mm. that yep. somehow will become the yep. story. And look, it's the first you know, it's the first time I've seen a lot of tweets and messages from people who've traditionally felt very comfortable at the football saying, now for the first time I'm feeling intimidated and uncomfortable. <laughs> and what I'd like to ch- do is challenge those people to think about that feeling, just sit with that feeling. And then use it to engage your empathy muscle. Ask yourself how other people might feel sometimes when they're in a space. Oh, my gosh. The amount of people saying, I felt threatened at the football. If that is the first time you felt threatened at the football. Threatened by someone wearing a vest vest. with a phone number on it. If that is the first time, then wow, bless. Uh, Lucy, there was an article that caught your eye this week. So something that came out of the AFL statement regarding the Adam Goods documentary was the AFL recognising that the Indigenous game of Marnbrook had an undoubted influence on Australian rules football. As a result of that, we saw a story where a few historians kind of disputed that link. In response to a request for an interview by the ABC on this point, Tanya Hosh gave a statement that the sharing of oral history by Aboriginal elders had changed the AFL's understanding of Marnbrook and its role in the origins of the game. This is something that's been around for a really long time. And in our first season, we actually had an interview on this topic. And here it is for you now. So today's guest has a lifelong habit of challenging accepted wisdom and of asking difficult questions on the big issues. When his school teacher told him that Captain had discovered Australia 200 years ago, he took issue, arguing that that can't be true because my mum just told me that her family were here for many generations before Captain Cook ever turned up. He was sent out of class for being a troublemaker, but thankfully that experience didn't deter him. He kept asking questions, eventually as an academic, and is now one of Australia's leading experts on Indigenous culture and identity. It's a pleasure to welcome my friend and a fellow Hawthorne tragic, (laughs) Professor Barry Judd, to the Outer Sanctum podcast. Welcome, Barry. Thanks, Kate. One of the things that you've been really interested in is, is another historic issue. It's occupied the minds of sports historians and footy fans and people like you in recent years, and that's about the origins of Australian rules football. So I think it's largely accepted that Tom Wills is the person that's most responsible for inventing Aussie rules, but... The more controversial point is whether he borrowed ideas from local Indigenous communities, from Marngrook, in developing the game. In 2008, the AFL commissioned a book to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the game. In it, historian Gillian Hibbins addressed that link and she concluded that there was no evidence linking Marngrook to Tom Wills and she called it quite famously now, I think, a seductive myth. And that's something that you've taken issue with. Can you explain to us why you found that problematic. Part of my PhD thesis at Monash University was Tom Wills specifically, and of course the question of football origins came up. When I wrote the thesis, one of the key thinkers on the question of origins was Geoffrey Blaney. Blaney conceded that the high mark in the modern game of Australian rules football was probably an adaptation from people on the goalfields and such, seeing Aboriginal people play 
their traditional football games or what has come to be known generally as Mark Rook. However, Blaney and those who followed gave much more emphasis to the imported ideas of sport from Great Britain. And that always was something that I found limiting in our view of Tom Wills. Tom Wills, for people who don't know, spent a significant amount of time growing up as a child on the colonial frontier in Australia. But that period of his life was left left out of the stories of his contribution to Australian sport, I thought. I was interested in thinking about how, as a young boy growing up in close contact with Aboriginal people, how would that shape what happened later? We know from various sources, journals that his father left, recollections of his cousin, Henry Harrison, that Tom had significant engagements with Aboriginal people at the station at Lexington. Harrison says that he was fluent in the language, that Mm -hmm. he was a fantastic mimic of local dancers. He played with Aboriginal kids on a regular, if not daily, basis. Now, given all that circumstantial evidence, I think it's fairly likely that Wills also saw Aboriginal people playing their own forms of football had insights into how they gave meaning to those games, Mm -hmm. which was outside of a British sporting tradition. It's likely those experiences influenced his later decisions to move for the Melbourne rules to be introduced. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about why those ideas of little evidence or no evidence might be racialised ideas in a way? Sure. Many of those who deny any possibility of a Mangrook connection are very conservative in how they view the discipline of history and seek only the kind of evidence that you would find in a library or an archive. Um, These are people who uh, seek written documentation that events happened, that connections existed. In a post-colonial context where you've got um, a lot of things going on that people don't want to record for the future, Mm. where you have an Indigenous population whose tradition is non-paper-based, it's an oral tradition, Um, you have a problematic for the way that you frame history. Until the 1980s, history was basically framed according to the colonial archive. Aboriginal people that I, I know of in this part of the country believe as a matter of truth that there's a connection uh, that exists between Margrook and the game we see played on the MCG today. Mm-hmm. They have memories of those games within the oral traditions of their communities, but that's as hard as the evidence is ever going to be unless we find more diaries from more colonists who are on the frontier who can confirm the relationship via the archive. There's a real issue there, and it's an issue and a debate about what is history and how do we write it, and I guess there's a a more significant issue there as well about what is truth. Even though these are specific questions about the origins of football, I think more broadly they're really questions about who owns our game. I would see the the saga surrounding Adam Goods in his final season of playing as reflecting that question. Mm-hmm. So when Adam Goods uh, danced uh, an Aboriginal war dance during the Indigenous round uh, last year, there was outrage that this man would choose to do so. But the way I see it and other Aboriginal people see that as Goods is, is bringing pride in Aboriginal culture to a game that we all own. That's a fascinating discussion and I think it's something that's going to continue to be something that's talked about. But just on this point, I want to recommend a book. It's called Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe and I imagine that many of you have read it. It's a book that examines Indigenous Australian history and culture in post-colonial Australia in a way that most of us have never heard of before. What's fascinating is that Bruce examines the way that historical sources can be used to build a vastly different narrative. It's challenging to the predominant history. It's fascinating, it's eye-opening, and in reading it, I really swung between 
awe and anger, but it raises a whole issue about the politics of citation. Um, Kate Sear sent an article around to all of us on the politics of citation, and we will include that in our show notes for this episode. Because this is a football podcast and that's the way we roll. It was nice to have Kate's voice on the pod from two years, three years ago. She sounded so much younger. She sounded so (laughs) much younger. Alicia, there has been a development. I love going to the airport. Let me just put that out there. Yes. I still love going to the airport. Even with budget travel, I still, I smell that aeroplane fuel and I get a little bit excited, even if I'm just going to Sydney for the day. Well, the AFL is announcing a partnership with a named brand that will combine Australians' love of travel and footy with AFL kitchen and bar at the airport in a particular (laughs) terminal that you will find. It's more than just a family restaurant. It unites fans through their love of the game, inviting families to relax and enjoy some food and refreshments. Are you reading a press release or are you reading totally. an article from the newspaper or did you <laughs> no, write I'm that? Reading, no, I'm reading a press release. And I'm reading, that's right. And I'm reading it in that voice. So it's saying that it's a unique thing the way you can uh, go and be passionate about footy. But I'm wondering just through the hothouse that is your team and having 18 clubs, how how do you kind of have this relaxing environment where you sit and go, I love footy too? It's like remembering the playground when you have toddlers and one of them will go up to the others and go, Wiggles? And the other goes, Wiggles? Yeah. Blue? Blue? Mum? Dad? Cool. And they're friends for life. Will we go in and do that with, with footy? Go Hawks? Hawks? So do you think awesome. all the Hawks people will sit, sit yeah. together in the cafe and all the Swans people will yeah. sit together in How the cafe? How do you decide which game oh. when there's two? Does that mean we now need to put bumper stickers on our luggage? Yes, exactly. Oh, this is a whole yeah. new thing. What, and what if would you do in the lounge? Well, if you're flying business, you get to sit in the members. Oh, <laughs> behind question. glass. Yeah. Well, will yeah. it just be AFL themed so it doesn't feel like a particular team is getting I'd say so. just be like lots of red Sharon oh, and like seats footy. And yeah, flip down chairs and you throw your rubbish on the ground afterwards. Something like that. Yeah, and nice. the chips are more expensive. But how do you support AFL leisurely at the airport? I think if you're overseas and it, it's a different experience too. I know that when okay. I'm overseas and I see an AFL game, I'm just in there and go AFL. And if I saw go a Aussie hockey rules. room in Canada, I guess I yeah, might wander in. It's intriguing that we don't have, we probably do at like a ground, but outside of that, like an Aussie rules themed Hub. Chuck E. Cheese with... <laughs> Ew. Do you know what I mean? Like with animated football I don't things. I think we want and... that. I feel like this is the gateway drug to that. There's going to be like be a new chain of family restaurants be with a... great a... party venue for theme park. Small children. I feel like it would be too and you could maybe do a handball comp. Footy and... World. Footy World. Mm. There's probably... Com- Footy World's probably coming to you really soon. They're going to have one in China, definitely. Next, with buses year, that go, no to the doubt, right. go to the right ground. ground. You know when you said that when you're overseas and you see an AFL game, you just go, oh, you just go footy. That's like that song Land Down Under. I'd never listen to it here. If I hear it when I'm overseas. Straight on the dance floor. Oh, I'm like Peter Allen. I'm crying all over Just playing some like <laughs> make-believe flute. Dance Peter flute. Allen? I still call Australia home. I get all a bit Peter oh. Allen about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> A great pleasure of having you in the studio today is that we don't have to have Googling with Felicity from her car studio. (laughs) We can have it in the reels. Have you got one for us today? I sure do. So this week, a few listeners have tweeted us or contacted us and asked, why is a goal worth six points and a behind worth one? Well, as we've discussed today, we don't have a written history pre the 1850s. We do have to rely on the Tom Wills letter explaining the rules of a game that, in his words, was developed to keep cricketers fit during winter. He wrote that back at that time, the team first to score two goals was declared the winner. And at this time, there were only two posts at the end of each um, end of the field. There was no time limit. You just kept on playing until two goals were scored. But as the popularity of the game grew, so did the number of rules. And by 1866, the rules were amended to require a pair of goalposts, seven yards apart, and the introduction of point posts. But from what I can understand, back then point posts were 60 feet away from the goals. And they seemed to be used more as a rugby-style kickoff point for a set shot rather than today's traditional points. Now, despite having point posts... Only the kicks that went through the goals were recorded in the official score, but a large number of ties started occurring, and a way to break the tie was to start counting the number of times the ball passed behind the goal line, or a behind. Mind blown, hey? 
So any ball that passed between those outer point posts that originally were 60 feet out and went over the goal line was informally recorded, but only referred to if the number of goals at the end of the match was equal uh, to break the tie. The point post then started to creep in closer and closer. And so the 60-foot distance was reduced to 30 feet and then 20 feet. And I actually think this is where that current AFL slogan of constantly shifting the goalposts may have come from. (laughs) (laughs) But in 1897, the rules were amended to our present scoring system, which introduced six points for a goal and one point for a behind, and all the scores were officially recorded. So why six points? Well, keep in mind, this game was being devised by cricketers and six was considered the best score of one shot in cricket. So a goal would be a six and a behind, just a single. And of course, in cricket, everything's imperial. Six balls in and over, six runs for over the fence, 12 in a team, so 11 plus the 12th man, leading to a development of a football game with six at its core. So six for a goal, teams of 18, or three times six, and of course, six dollars for a bucket of chips. (laughs) 60. (laughs) And this is maybe why they've gone back to six... 6-6 six, six formation. Exactly. <gasps> Snowflake. It's, it's all coming home oh, to roost. Oh, my gosh. My mind is blown. Six of us. It's the number six, isn't it? Oh. <gasps> I always wondered why we had Kate Sear on here. <laughs> <laughs> You're Googling. Did you Google microfish? Is that's pretty microfish? interesting, wasn't it? No. I'll actually put Microfilm? the link up Micro. on our show notes. But there is a summary of the rule changes between the years of 1860-something um, all the way up to, I think it stops at 2013, then they ran out of paper because there were too many rule changes after that. It's really interesting to think that the points were what were used to break a tie. So imagine if... Like now we don't have, like we play extra time instead. So we've changed the rules to then have to change the rules again. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Isn't that crazy? What? 60 feet apart. I know. But imagine if you missed. <laughs> oh, I mean, that yeah. would be terrible. Oh, I but I'm yeah. fascinated. Terrible. I always wondered why it was called a behind. I never really think about it until I try and explain the game to someone from overseas. Mm-hmm. And you say, if you kick a behind, you get a point. And, and like, they just and look at you. That's behind like, you? Like no, you it's kick in front a player, of you, like in kicking the someone up the behind. Well, I love it. You've completely blown my mind. Thank you very much for really bringing it this week. This show has been brought to you by the number six. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up next, we're going around the grounds. Hi, I'm Tiana Ants, and I play for the inaugural AFL Gold Coast Sun Daughters, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to hear your voice, Tiana. Congratulations on the move to the Gold Coast. Can you tell us how did this move from the Bulldogs to the Gold Coast Suns slash Daughters, how did that happen? Yeah, it was really mainly a decision I had to make regarding my professional career as a doctor. Um, I was at the end of my um, sort of obstetric and gynecology advanced training and I needed to make a decision to sort of challenge myself professionally. Um, the Bulldogs knew about the position that I was able to obtain. It was a quite a competitive and really sought after position at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. And so they knew um, quite early last year that um, I potentially would be moving. And then unfortunately, we couldn't sort of figure out a, a, a way to make it actually balanced so that we could obviously play for the, or I could play for the Western Bulldogs, but also be up here. And so it was just sort of the, the sensible decision to make sure that I still played footy. Um, and so having an opportunity at the Gold Coast Suns was the thing that allowed me to do that. So Tiana, we've seen there's been a number of players signed and it's looking really exciting. Can you tell us what it's like being up there. What's going on at Gold Coast? Look, it's really exciting. It's obviously incredibly new, um, quite a young team as well, but a very good mix of experience. Um, Leah Kasler and Sam Virgo coming across from the Brisbane Lions, just a wealth of experience. Um, We've also got Sally Riley from Adelaide. So there's sort of really good leadership and experience within the team, Um, but it's just a really good, fresh feel. I guess we're all really excited about seeing what we can actually do, making the team and the culture and and the environment that we're in, anything that we like. Who knows what we can actually achieve and what we can accomplish together as a team. Um, obviously, we've got the Winter Series going at the moment, which is a good opportunity to sort of try and build the, the list around the players that are already signed. But it's just a really exciting feel and yeah, everyone's just really keen to make the most of it. Tiana, you were born in Northern Queensland. Is there such thing as the Queensland spirit that you're going to bring to the game? Yeah, look, I think so. And the Gold Coast Suns actually has a very good link with Finals Queensland as well. So it sort of felt like a really good fit when I 
I did sit down with uh, Fiona McLartley and David Lake about joining their club. It just sort of really felt like that was probably almost home in a way because it was going back to my grassroots and where I started playing community footy. So I look, I think that there will be definitely some fierce contests and we're all very proud of being Queenslanders and being born and, and bred in Queensland. I definitely um, feel that passion as well. We were talking earlier in our episode today about the need for flexible employers when people want to be playing football as well. How early on in the um, the job interview phase do you bring up football? I'm generally pretty transparent with my extracurricular activities outside of uh, outside of work, and I've always been through my entire sort of football career. So, then, you know, first moving down to Melbourne, I, I told them I played footy, and then obviously when I was involved in the AFW from the inaugural season, my employer knew straight away and were appreciative of the honesty and the transparency that I was trying to continue to balance. And the same thing when I um, applied for the job at the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital, I told them, look, I play footy. I would like to intend to continue the balance. I'm pretty determined and passionate that it actually makes me a better doctor because it brings me leadership skills, communication and teamwork. So I find that that's a very, a generally a good approach to any employees. If you're transparent about what you're trying to balance, then there's no reason why it can't be attempted to be achieved. Tiana, you just mentioned then you are a proud Queenslander. I don't think we've ever really talked to you about this on the program before, but can you give our listeners some insight into where you grew up and, and your origin story, kind of the roots of where you grew up were? Yeah, um, so I've got a pretty unique story. So I was born on Thursday Island, which is the most northern town in Australia. It's actually a little island off the tip of Cape York. My parents were um, a remote Indigenous community teachers up there. And so I grew up in an Indigenous community for the majority of my um, young childhood. Once I got closer to high school, mum and dad moved us a little bit closer down towards Cairns. Then we lived in a rural community called Gelatin, um, which is sort of near Port Douglas, I guess, for most people that know where Port Douglas is. Um, and again, a rural upbringing. I didn't come into playing footy until late, later in my years when I was at university. I attended James Cook University in Townsville and then spent two years in Cairns. And that's where I met the Menunda Hawks. Um, and they were a, a local team that was playing in the Cairns um, AFL um, Women's league at the time and that's sort of where I started to pick up footy. Uh, at the time there was only actually four teams in the competition. We just sort of played round robin all the time but it has now expanded into a much more uh, successful and bigger comp. Tiana, you have now been part of two AFL clubs, one an older established Victorian club and now with the Gold Coast Suns, a, a club that's probably still, you could say, in its startup phase. Are there any major differences that you see between being part of organisations that are at really different parts of their history? It's been a bit of an adjustment, obviously, coming from the Bulldogs and, and being there for the last three seasons. You're so used to their, their cultures and their values and how they do things. Um, I don't think there's anything bad about where I've come. If anything, it's an exciting and fresh new feel. It's been an incredibly inclusive feel that I have had the minute I walked through the, the doors at the Gold Coast Suns and and that was very evident from the day that we were actually announced that we were signed as uh, expansion signings. I had, you know, up to 10 male players individually, personally text me to say, welcome to the club, really excited to actually get to know you. And, and that's the general feel that all the girls signed have, have felt, is that everyone really wants to make this a family-orientated club and make sure that all teams are inclusive of each other's successes and each other's journeys through footy. So yeah, it's been really, really exciting in that regard. Um, I think we're building our own culture and we're building our own brand and I guess the history comes along with that. So um, yeah, it's exciting time to be at the Gold Coast Suns. We're excited to see you and we know that you're going to be hard working but will you you know just occasionally get a helicopter flight somewhere <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i can pull a helicopter flight um this year i've uh, think i've um, put all my tricks out of my bag so far um, look at the moment i'm actually going to be um trying to negotiate uh how's the best way to commute to the, the gold coast for training so at the moment i'm on the train so i might see if i can get a free go-kart or something like that so i don't have to keep playing till the the train ride, but no, um, no helicopters. Tiana, can I ask, were you um, surprised this week when we um, heard the news that Paul Groves is stepping away from AFLW? Yeah, look, I w it was a bit of a surprising um, announcement. Um, I was really close to Paul, obviously, you know, being under his, his helm for the last three years. Um, but a completely understandable uh, move, I guess, for him from a professional point of view and also taking into consideration his family. I uh, got to know his family really well and I understand that, obviously, a young family, he needs to make sure that he looks after them. But it is obviously sad for the AFLW community because he was such an important member of the, of the coaching community and also such an important um, member of our premiership winning team. 
know, I sent him a text yesterday and just sort of wished him luck. And look, he was really the best coach I've ever ever had so far. So I sort of, yeah, wish him luck in, in the next endeavours that he's got. On the weekend, I was watching the Hawthorne VFLW girls and Meg Hutchins kicked a goal from just outside 50 and Steph, her partner and wife, ran up and said, that's my wife. And it was a real <laughs> moment. And I was wondering whether, whether there was any chance that we might see Laura Attard, your wife, playing for the Gold Coast Suns as well, given that you've made the move. Yeah, look, fingers crossed. Um, um, she's just got to go through the, the system, I guess, now that she's unfortunately been delisted and has to sort of um, do everything right. Um, but we're in the, the Gold Coast Suns Academy in the Winter Series together, and so that's been really exciting and really nice to finally play I guess, alongside each other again after we sort of initially started playing together at Diamond Creek. Um, but she's doing everything right, and I know that she'll put her best foot forward and I think just has to be a bit patient in the next little um, while to see whether or not she does get picked up. Um, fingers crossed for her. Well, you're elite in every way. We love speaking to you. Thank you so much for making time for us today and for bringing us some stories from the northern states. We really appreciate it. No problem. Lovely to talk to you ladies. All right, let's land this plane, Alicia. <laughs> Alicia, sometimes. Has anyone got any final business? It's World Refugee Day on Thursday and, of course, that's the time the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre needs your help and they have a great telethon and you can ring up and speak to great celebrities like Emma Race and Lucy <laughs> Race. I'll be on at 6am in the morning if you're up that early. It's a lot of fun. I remember one time calling Claire Bowditch and Emily Ullman and, you know, it's all, all exciting you get to talk to someone and do go to their website asrc.org.au and we'll put that information up. I was at the SB last night and they had a rock dog scarf behind the bar <gasps> and that reminded me that it is community cup time. So the Recklink Community Cup is actually going to seven cities in 2019. The first game kicks off in Melbourne this Sunday the 23rd of June at Victoria Park and the theme for this year's cup is From Little Things, Big Things Grow. You can go to community communitycup.com.au and get all of the information about where all those other games are going to be played. You got anything over there? Googling? No, look, I just want to say thanks for having me. It's, oh, been, very it's nice. been lovely. You didn't buy coffee. Can I take her that. spot? I mentioned the book Dark Emu earlier on in the podcast. Yes. Um, there's actually a version coming out for young people later this year, which I think is just awesome. I have a little something-something for you. I saw an article from the BBC saying ITV bans all male comedy writing teams. This is where it starts. This is where you start breaking down um, long-held infrastructure that has kept women and women's voices out of popular culture but also out of commentary boxes and out of comedy writing rooms and basically ITV is saying that they will no longer commission comedy shows with all male writers rooms which is just a huge move. I've got a background in comedy and to see that this morning I just felt like the world is changing and the BBC is doing some amazing things. Um, there's a program that ABC is rolling out and has adopted as well that is from the BBC which is a 50-50 project where they're trying to make sure that there's um, a split of both genders or genders represented across as experts and voices um, being quoted in articles, on TV and in radio. And I think that the more diversity, the better. And I love seeing it start with comedy and I really can't wait for that to be something that just becomes by the by. Every day. Every day. You know, people go, we've got gender equality because we have one woman on our board or like you know it's, do the maths do the maths if there's not a cue for the women's toilet you're not getting it right <laughs> <laughs> so musical theatre is nailing it no, nailing can I it. just say thanks for letting me be an honorary sister today because <laughs> you're both you're a formidable force you three No, oh. you are oh yeah f*** that <laughs> bleep me out again I'm ringing that phone number <laughs> Let's all go get matching vests. Are we all done? We're ready to sing it, ladies. There's only one thing left to say. Are you in with this, Tess? Sing it. Three, two, one. Go Go footy! footy!